This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. More and more these days, you can hear a buzzing up in the sky. A buzzing not from insects, but from drones. No longer just military hardware, civilian drones are multiplying by leaps and bounds, potentially jeopardizing air safety, which is why the federal government is expected to announce new drone regulations this coming week. David Pogue will report our cover story. Drones are spectacular. Drones are evil. The U.S. Open tennis tournament's a small black drone hovered over one of last night's matches before crashing into empty seats. Which is it? You know, the thing about drones is that it really fills people with, like, a, a childlike wonder when they see it. The promise of drones and the challenge of keeping them under control. Ahead on Sunday morning. Unzipped is a story from Rita Braver who's been talking with an author not afraid to speak her mind. More than four decades after the uproar over fear of flying, her sexually daring debut novel, Erica Jong has not mellowed. Do you feel that today a woman writing 
about sex is still treated differently than the man writing about the same subjects? Without a doubt. We don't pee. We don't have sex. We don't have sexual fantasies. Later on Sunday morning, the unabridged Erica Jong. Rough riding will be the order of the day today for some of the toughest convicts in the country. Lee Cowan will take us to the Louisiana State Prison they call Angola. This isn't your average rodeo. He's digging somebody a grave. Here, prison inmates, not cowboys, take to the arena while spectators look on. You guys don't have any experience, and yet they're selling tickets for people to come out and kind of watch you get hurt. Not, not to me, Colby. It, it, it's on us to take that chance. The oldest prison rodeo in the country. How it survived. Yeah, I'd move. And why. Ahead on Sunday morning. Ben Tracy previews the fall movies. Steve Hartman watches a near-century-old hockey player still enjoying his glory days. And more. Next, the flight of the drones. And later, I was the happy hooker of literature. Author Erica John. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Look, up in the sky. It's not a bird, not a plane. It's a drone. Indoors and out, drones are everywhere. So much so that tomorrow, the Department of Transportation will announce a registration requirement for private drone ownership. It's expected to go into effect by Christmas. Of course, by then, a lot more drones will be flying. Our cover story is reported now by David Pogue of Yahoo Tech. Colorado farmer Greg Schreiner has a good eye for a good ear of corn. In my opinion, that's a beautiful ear. This summer, his crops got help from a rather non-traditional farm implement, a drone, a remote-controlled flying robot with a camera. Its pictures revealed a corn crisis, a dead zone that wasn't getting irrigated right in the middle of the field. We walked out into the field, walked into that area, found out that seven nozzles were clogged which meant we weren't getting water on 37 acres. If we would have let it go, the potential was pretty huge for a loss. That drone came from a company called Agrobotics. Its founder is Tom McKinnon. Right now, you know, we're selling drones as fast as we can make them. We've come a long way from military drones. Now there's a new crop of small, sophisticated drones that anyone can fly. And they're transforming all kinds of fields, not just cornfields. Filmmakers and photographers use them. They can get aerial shots where helicopters dare not go. Engineers use them to inspect utility lines and pipelines far away. Realtors take video of houses for sale and even fly through them. Law enforcement uses them to patrol borders. A Belgian student even designed an ambulance drone that can deliver emergency equipment. It's an emerging art form and it's really amazing. Randy Slavin owns an aerial cinematography company called Yeah Drones. He's also the founder of the New York City Drone Film Festival. I talked him into giving me a little driver's ed with his $3,000 drone. 
So how hard are they to fly exactly? Really simple. Even you can fly it. Oh, thank you. All right, so left stick makes the drone go up and down. Exactly. Now the right stick will make it slide right or slide left or forward and backward. And if you let go, what'll it do? Well, this one has GPS, so it'll just stay exactly where it is. So, drones are awesome. Drones are easy to fly. Drones are changing the world for the better, right? Well, most of the time. As you've no doubt seen, drones also make headlines for the wrong reasons. Five people were injured when this drone crashed into the crowd. Secret Service officers combed the White House grounds after this drone crashed into a tree on the South Lawn. There have been more than a dozen cases of drones disrupting firefighting efforts. They make frightening flying weapons. And maybe scariest of all, drones could get in the way of airplanes. Close calls between drones and airplanes are skyrocketing, according to a new report from the FAA. Clearly, there's a battle brewing. On one side, people who are excited about the enormous potential of drones. On the other, people who worry about noise, privacy, and safety. We have the most complicated airspace in the world, and uh, these new entrants, these unmanned aircraft, would be just another layer of uh, objects that we have flying in our airspace. Anthony Fox is the U.S. Secretary of Transportation. He oversees the FAA, which oversees the safety of our skies. The FAA has been working to come up with new rules to govern drones in America, but it hasn't been easy. So can you characterize the two um, warring sides of the rulemaking process? Isn't there two like sides? <laughs> <laughs> How many are there? There are a lot of sides of this one. And which side are you on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the side of safety. <laughs> Secretary Fox likens the arrival of drones to the dawn of the first automobiles. And all of a sudden, this new entrant is trying to occupy the same space as horse-drawn carriages. In some respects, that's where we are. We're trying to integrate this new use in a space that's been occupied by airplanes helicopters, hobbyists, and general aviation for so long. The FAA distinguishes between flying a drone for fun and flying one for money. Today, you're allowed to fly an amateur drone as long as you keep it five miles away from airports, below 400 feet, and within your sight. You can fly a drone for commercial purposes only with special permission from the FAA. But the FAA has proposed a new set of rules for commercial drones that would probably go into effect next year. A lot of companies are nervously watching to see how restrictive they're going to be, especially Google and Amazon, which have huge plans to start delivering customer orders by drone. Prime Air is a future delivery service that will get packages to customers within 30 minutes of them ordering it online at Amazon.com. Paul Meisner is in charge of public policy for Amazon. What if I'm not home? It gets delivered to your doorstep or wherever you want in your yard, just like it would be if it were delivered by the UPS truck. Last year, Amazon made this video to show how Prime Air might work. But the drones they're building and testing now are very different and still secret. These are highly automated drones that can take care of themselves in, in many respects. They have what is called sense and avoid technology. That means basically seeing or detecting and then avoiding obstacles. Amazon is watching the FAA like a hawk. If the new rules wind up too restrictive, Amazon Prime Air might never get off the ground. Well, what happens if the technology is ready 
but the FAA still doesn't have regulations in place for Amazon. We're going to be trying to deploy Prime Air everywhere we operate, so there's no reason why the United States must be first. We hope it is. But here's the thing. We enjoy the world's safest air travel because we have a terrific air traffic control system. Maybe the answer to the drone problem is right over our noses. Is it useful to say it's kind of like the air traffic control system, but for drones? Uh, that's a good uh, analogy. Parimal Kapartikar is in charge of NASA engineers who are working with the FAA to develop an air traffic control system for drones. How would it work? I'm, I'm a uh, filmmaker and I would like to fly along the Golden Gate Bridge and shoot that. What, what would I do? You can actually file your flight plan or a trajectory into the system. Uh, you could get that airspace reservation for that particular operation. So he has to stay within those dotted lines. He has to stay within those dotted lines. Uh, Engineer Thomas Prevo is head of NASA's Airspace Operations Lab. He showed me some hypothetical drone flights in a simulation of the new system. So, so before each flight started, they, they essentially submitted an operations plan into the system. A flight plan? Kind of a flight plan, yeah. And here's an operation that was a, supposed to be a pizza delivery over the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> a pizza but, delivery? Yeah. And, but but it, you can't fly over the Golden Gate Bridge currently because it's a national park. So it got rejected. Ah. NASA has started testing the new air traffic control system outside the lab. So what you're saying is you tried it and it worked. We have tried and it works. <laughs> and not a moment too soon. The FAA predicts that a million drones will be sold this holiday season. What's their appeal? Looks good. Well, consider this year's winner of Randy Slavin's Drone Film Festival. A video about Superman strapping a video camera to his head. It's super entertaining and amazing. I mean, it's still, every time I watch it, it gives me chills to imagine what it would be like to be him, to fly like on his shoulders or something. Are you And in the end, that's why drones are so irresistible. That's why they're our certain future. Because, come on, who wouldn't want to be Superman? Coming up, a real golden oldie. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. Calling Dick Tracy. Calling Dick Tracy. October 18th, 1954, 61 years ago today. The day Dick Tracy's wristwatch radio nearly came true. Dick Tracy calling patrolman hippocalorie. That was the day Texas Instruments and a company called IDEA jointly unveiled the TR-1, the very first transistor radio. A radio so small that while it can't quite be strapped to the wrist, it can be slipped easily into an ordinary suit coat pocket. Instead of the big vacuum tubes that powered the old furniture-sized living room radio, this new radio used tiny transistors the result, talk and music right in the palm of your hand. Small though it was, the transistor radio sparked a very big change in our popular culture. WMCA, the most generous station in the nation. It was embraced, both literally and figuratively, by the youth of the 1950s and 60s. 
It was a fashion accessory in the 1965 movie Beach Blanket Bingo. And an object of fascination for co-stars Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. While in the Beatles' 1964 movie, A Hard Day's Night, Ringo's transistor radio became a flashpoint in the battle between the generations. Then we'll have that thing off as well, thank you. From the portable cassette player to the Walkman to digital music players like the iPod that can hold thousands of songs, the world of personal music is endlessly changing. As for the stuff inside, the once glowing tubes got smaller, turned into transistors, the transistors turned into tinier chips. Pretty soon the insides will get so small, there won't be anything there at all. Unzipped is as good a one-word description as any of provocative author Erica Jong. Her writing is not for the faint of heart, nor is what she has been known to say, as Rita Braver found out. By most people who review books and write book chat, I was the happy hooker of literature. That lack of respect for her writing still rankles Erica Jong, who in 1973 became a sensation when she published an audacious novel called Fear of Flying. Her heroine, Isadora Wing, a writer like Jong herself, dared to think the same lusty thoughts as generations of male characters. You created the phrase that's gone down in history, and we're going to call it, what, the zipless F-word. Or the ZF. <laughs> we call it the ZF on television. What is the ZF? The ZF is the fantasy that you see a really handsome stranger on a train. You wrap your arms around each other. Clothes fly off as if by magic. And as Isadora says in Fear of Flying, and I have never had one. Now, how did that go from and I have never had one to if the Erica Jongs of this world have their way, women everywhere will be hopping from bed to bed to bed to bed. Didn't nobody read the book? Good for you. Well, actually, more than 27 million people read the book. And now, more than 40 years later, at age 73, she's back with fear of dying, this time about issues of vitality and mortality facing an aging former actress. I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. As Joan told a rapt audience in suburban New Jersey, her heroine, Vanessa Wonderman, must cope with aging parents, an ailing husband, and her own intense sexual desire. Women were not allowed to have passion at 60. We were supposed to become grandmothers and retreat into serene sexlessness. Sex was for 20, 30, 40, even 50. Sex at 60 was an embarrassment. So in the sly nod to Jong's first book, Vanessa signs up for a sex website called zipless.com. Some of the scenes that you describe both serious and hilariously funny in some mm -hmm. cases, made me say to myself, okay, Erica Jong has not lost it. <laughs> she can still do this. 
But, you know, early on when Vanessa is going to Zippos, she meets a parade of Meshuganas <laughs> that are so unbelievable. And your descriptions of them are fabulous. One of them um, wants to be her personal slave. He says he'll put rocks in her shoes and clean her toilets. And she says, this is not what I was looking for. This is my mother with my older sister five years before I was born. Her father founded a successful giftware business. It was an artistic and eccentric New York Jewish family. My parents were nudists, not officially, but around the house they never put clothes on. My mother was a wonderful painter, designer, sculptor. My father was then a songwriter and a pianist and a drummer. And he was in Jubilee, 1935, auditioned by Cole Porter, and he introduced the song, Begin the Begin. When they begin the begin, etc. And after two, two girls were born, the second being me, my mother said, Seymour, time to do something else. After college at Barnard, Erica Man Jong published two books of poetry. Then came Fear of Flying, so revolutionary that Mike Wallace and 60 Minutes took note. You know, but you're writing about what George Orwell calls the dirty handkerchief side of life. That is the subject for the novelist. If you throw out those things, if you throw out the smells, the tastes, you lose half of the texture of reality. Do you feel that today a woman writing about sex, bodily functions, all those taboos, is still treated differently than the man writing about the same subjects? Without a doubt. We're supposed to be non-physical creatures when we write. We don't pee. We don't have sex. We don't have sexual fantasies. How ridiculous. Jong has written lots more poetry, novels, and nonfiction, including a memoir called Fear of 50. She has a daughter, two grandchildren, and dwells high above Manhattan. We've been living here almost as long as we've been married. And when we first moved here, Ken's parents lived there. You see that penthouse? Right. Ken is family lawyer Ken Burroughs, Jong's husband of 26 years. They're each other's fourth, and they insist, last spouses. What do you think made this one last? Laughter, <laughs> loyalty. We crack each other up. In one of our earliest dates, we were sitting in a restaurant, and Erica said, I'm frightened you're going to get angry if I write about you, and you're going to try and stop me from writing about you. And? I reached for a napkin, and I wrote out a general release, <laughs> giving Erica permission to write about me and agreeing on the same release that I would never interfere with her doing so. How do you like how she writes about you? I like how she writes about me or about anybody else. And Erica Jong plans to keep writing. There you go. Thank you. Though it's been four decades since she first made her mark. Fear of flying has become shorthand now in this country for when somebody's afraid to take, on, take a risk. Right. And that's what I always meant by it. It was a metaphor. 
it was a metaphor for sex. It was a metaphor for ambition. It was a metaphor for moving beyond limitations. And now I look at the racks of books and half of them say, how to become fearless. And I look at them and I think, hmm, I might have had something to do with that. <laughs> Excuse me, can I take a photo of your dog? Coming up, oh, the nice. doggist has his day. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A short take now from a man with a strong claim to the title Dog's Best Friend. He's Elias Weiss Friedman, a photographer whose blog and brand new book are both called The Doggist. Excuse me, can I take a photo of your Pomeranian? I can photograph 20 or 30 dogs a day. My name is Elias Weiss Friedman and I am the Doggist. Can I take a photo of your dog? Sure. Shizu? Yeah, very nice. When I talk to a dog, I try and speak their language. If they want to play with me, then I play with them. If they're scared, then I'll back off a little bit. You always try to match their energy. Lucy. There we go. When I'm on the ground, dogs think that I'm some strange one-eyed animal. So if I start making a noise, they'll look right into the lens thinking it's my eye, and they'll Excuse me, can I take a photo of your dog? Good girl, very nice. I run a blog called The Doggist. Oh, I, I follow The Doggist. You follow me? Yeah, I do. Awesome. I now have more than a million followers on social media, and that's a crazy amount of people to be following my work. I have a book coming out in the fall. I try and post four to five times a day, in the morning, around lunch, in the evening and at nighttime, because I feel like people enjoy it throughout the day. Yeah, she's doing great. Millie, who knew you were so photogenic? <laughs> this is sort of my everyday tool. I rate them based on their squeaky, their squeakitude. Jerky strips, knee pads are crucial. Next to the shoes, it's not the uh, the lightest shoe, but it's the best shoe. Business cards in here with my website and Instagram handle. Good girl. I'm a big fan of the doggist. I follow him on Instagram. I love how he can capture the dog spirit in just one photo. It's quick and it's fun and it brightens your day. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Dogs have always been part of my life. This is my first dog, Ruby, Black Lab, but we also had Matilda. We had Snowy, Rigby, Teapaws, Bialy. We had a pug, I think, at one point, Whistle. My dad had a dark room in the house, so I was always curious about photography. I just need um, lens wipes. The lens wipes are from when dogs uh, slobber on the lens, they get too close, and they kiss the lens. Her name is Zoe. Zoe. People can be sort of skittish around cameras, but dogs always wear the story on their face. We're at the ASPCA here in New York, and we're here to help get these guys adopted. Shelter dogs are different because they've come from places where they may have been abused, uh, they weren't treated right. When I go to the shelter, I bring a bag of bones and I give them to the dogs, take their photo, and then 
uh, allow people from my audience to participate, help support these dogs. Oh! I saw that look in his eye. People are always surprised when they hear that I don't have a dog of my own. And I tell them that, you know, if I had a dog, I would fall in love with it and I wouldn't travel anymore. When a dog smiles at me, it makes me smile too because I know I've made that dog's day a little bit better. There'll be rough riding up plenty to be found today on the grounds of a Louisiana prison and an audience in the grandstand taking it all in. Lee Cowan shows us what it's all about. Prison, it's a punishing routine. Food, the clothes, the view, nothing changes. Life's variety, like an inmate's freedom, is taken away. But here at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, known as Angola, one of the most notorious maximum security prisons in the country, the monotony of doing hard time is occasionally broken. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Rodeo. For one weekend in April, and all the Sundays this month, some of Louisiana's most violent criminals become entertainment. We came to see the Rodeo. Spectators from all over fill the stadium, built by prisoners, mind you that seats more than 11,000 people. And let's ride! It's an odd mix, both animals and inmates released from their respective confinements to duel it out. It's both a crowd pleaser and a bit unsettling. The atmosphere reminds you of a state fair, but then there's the guard towers and razor wire. Even the Mississippi River fools you. It meanders its way around this former slave plantation in a very tranquil way, until you notice the alligators. All right, here we go, wild cow milking. This place is a never-ending stream of contrasts. You're not sure whether to cheer or jeer when you're here. He's digging somebody a grave. The competitions aren't what you'd expect at a regular rodeo. Don't move. Take convict poker. Four inmates uh -oh. sit nervously at a card table while a very restless bull picks out his target. Here we go. Neither takes out the whole card table at once, wow. or he picks the inmates off one by one. Don't run. The last one standing or sitting wins. We want to have this show and no one get hurt, no one be injured, and have a good time. It's about a good time. It's not about some sinister, brutal thing that happened. This your first one? Yes. Burl Kane has been Angola's warden for 20 years and is well aware that his rodeo can make the Louisiana State Penitentiary seem more like the Roman Coliseum. How is it not taking advantage of the inmates? Nobody has to do it. Nobody, nobody, nobody. They want to do it. How can I take advantage of you if you want to do it? Do you have any experience? Like, Oh, no. Nothing? Never been a cowboy. 
They're all volunteers, like first-time cowboy Virgil Smith, a career criminal who's here for murder. So why do you do this? Money. Yeah. I'm broke. I'm trying to get a private investigator on my case. He earns two cents an hour working in the prison fields, but he can earn hundreds out in that mud. It doesn't bug you that people are coming out to watch you guys get hurt? It's not really upsetting because, you know, people like to see anything that's filled with excitement. Do you ever have any qualms about putting these guys in the arena without any real rodeo training? No, here's what I do. This is the most important thing. They're wearing the flak vest, they're wearing the helmet, and then we have hired the very finest rodeo clowns who you see get between the bull and the guys and save the guys and get the bull to chase them. We've gone to, to a great extreme to protect them. In fact, he says most inmates walk away with just minor injuries. For him, a few bumps and bruises is worth it. If the inmates get a brief reprieve, from the hopelessness of prison. Over 80% of Angola's inmates will never be free again. Some don't even leave when they die. They're buried right here, inside the prison walls. It's like, take you away from being incarcerated while being incarcerated. Timothy Gay and Aldrich Lathan are both in for armed robbery. Is it something you guys look forward to all year? Yes, indeed. Yes, sir. Because it's probably not a lot else to look forward to in here, right? No. Not really. Now, their victims would likely argue they don't deserve to have something to look forward to. Certainly not those here for the most serious offenses. I took a hit and didn't get a penny. We took a hit and didn't get a penny. I got to try to change this dude because corrections means correct his deviant behavior. So I'm charged with correcting him. That's my job. It's not locking feet and torture and torment. Gather up the so the rodeo in his mind is rehabilitation, helping to give the inmates purpose. You want those two? Okay. At the rodeo's craft fair, offenders called trustees, having served at least a decade without incident, are allowed to sell items they make here, everything from bowls to rocking chairs. Yeah, we'll split that. For many, these interactions are the only time they talk with someone from the outside. I've had a bunch of them just speak, you know, even though I wasn't even shopping, you know, or anything, just to speak and have somebody actually talk to them as if they were human again. Is that the one you want? John Sheehan has been locked up here for 28 years for killing his wife. Like for my ID, I keep my ID just like that. The rodeo has given yeah. him a chance to start a small leatherworks business from behind bars. I had to try to find meaning in my life and purpose for my life. And that's what I've done while I've been incarcerated. To be sure, the rodeo does make money. This year, the event is expected to net close to $4 million. Proceeds that fund a host of inmate welfare programs that might otherwise be paid for with tax dollars. But the most tangible effect for the offenders is a chance to be seen in a more positive light. So what's it like to be out there and hear everybody cheering for you? It's wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. You know, I got to be doing something right for them to like me the way they like me. So. Marlon Brown, known as Tank, is doing life for murder. 
Perhaps it's no surprise he's champion of the toughest rodeo event of all. He has taken the chip 20 times. That is a record. It's called guts and glory. All right, here we go. Barehanded inmates try to grab a poker chip that's tied between the horns of a pretty angry bull. When you got a 2,500-pound animal in front of you, well, you can't be worrying about nothing new. This day was not Tank's day. Reach in for Tank! He was run over repeatedly. Whoa! Now, Tank, try to reach in, get the chip. His last attempt got him thrown into the fence. Gotta reach to get it! The chip flew off into another inmate's hand. It was a rare loss for Tank, but he limped out of the arena with a smile. It take a lot. Yeah. It take a lot to take me. I'm glad you're all right. All right. Like so many here, he figured he had nothing to lose. He'll never be free, so why not go for it? Whatever you think of the oldest prison rodeo in the country, there does seem to be no shortage of willing participants looking to feel free. Yeah, I move even for a few seconds. So it's worth the risk, you think, of getting hurt? Freedom, yeah. Yeah. Coming up? Oh, yeah. You're never too old. to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and tv personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it the glory days of most aging athletes are well behind them but not the one steve hartman has been watching in northern minnesota it's not uncommon to find a guy in his 90s looking back on his glory days as a hockey player but it is uncommon to find a guy still living them You've got to challenge yourself a little bit, and I think that's, that's what keeps you going, you know. Like his handlebar mustache, Mark Sertich's hockey days appear to be never-ending. He started playing as a little kid and is still putting on pads and gloves at the unbelievable age okay. of 94. Just putting all the equipment on is a miracle in itself for a lot of us, and he does it, and he does it three or four days a week. He is like nothing I have ever seen. Just stepping over the boards is like nothing I have ever seen. Oh, yeah. Mark plays in pickup games, and every time he comes to the rink, he is the oldest by a generation. In fact, some of these guys could be his great-grandchildren, and yet he keeps right up with them, almost as if he's oblivious to his age. You ever heard of shuffleboard? I have heard of it, but I never played it, yeah. It would be safer, that's for sure. A few months ago, he took a hard hit. Bad collision and I fractured uh, two ribs and punctured my lungs. Can you imagine? At 94, doctors told him he'd have to sit out at least six weeks. He was back in three. I just loved the game, I guess. And he's good at it, too. Watch this. That's him with the puck. Oh. Scoring. Hi. How many goals did you score today? Well, uh, I should have had more, but I only had six today. Only six today? Yeah. That's more than anybody else. Well, I think so, yeah. For the record, oh, it was. Couldn't miss that one. And to add insult to injury, not only does Mark beat the pants off these whippersnappers, he takes their money, too. Way back when Mark was just 80, the other guys in the group offered to pay his skating fees for life, thinking how much longer could it be? 
It's killing us. It's killing our budget. That was 14 years ago. Is that like, true? That's yeah, true. I figured, gee, that's a pretty good deal. So is it that you love hockey or are you just cheap? Well, you would ask that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, I so enjoy what I'm doing. And he has no plans to stop. In fact, he suggested we come back to watch him play again at 100. You got to think that way, don't you? <laughs> it's on my calendar. The centerfold, center stage, next. It happened this past week. Word came that Playboy magazine is abandoning its nude Playmate photos. Apparently, it can't compete with all that's available online. Wide-eyed magazine readers no longer will behold that once shocking invention they called the centerfold. Instead, they must content themselves and thoughtfully will muse over what they always said they read, the Playboy interviews. Just ahead, films for fall. The new season at the movies is underway. Our Ben Tracy has saved us a front row seat, along with some popcorn. In a theater not so far, far away, Hollywood will be out in full force with a bounty of fall films. If you're excited by movies, this is the time to be excited. Kenneth Turan is film critic for the Los Angeles Times. Hollywood saves the best for last. They kind of like squirrels that are hoarding nuts. And finally, by the end of the year, they let the good ones out. There will be some blockbusters. Star Wars gets a highly anticipated new chapter with The Force Awakens. Bond is back. I was taking some overdue holiday. Daniel Craig is once again 007 in the film Spectre. Welcome to the 76th Hunger Games. And it's game over for the Hunger Games. The final installment is Mockingjay Part 2. Tonight, turn your weapons to the capital. I feel like they've been around for my entire adult life. There seems to be always a new uh, Hunger Games film. You know, splitting this last book into two films is such a naked commercial move, but they did it and it seems to be working. And people will still go. People will definitely go. And people are likely to go see Tom Hanks as a New York lawyer caught up in Cold War intrigue in the Steven Spielberg thriller, Bridge of Spies. Do you never worry? Would it help? Sandra Bullock plays a campaign consultant for hire in Bolivia in Our Brand is Crisis. Wake up. This is war. There's only one wrong in this. Only one, and that is losing. Maybe check and see if uh, anyone understood that. Levante la mano si habla inglés. Gracias. What is it? It's the whale that inspired Moby Dick in Ron Howard's epic In the Heart of the Sea. Many fall films launched far from Hollywood in places like Toronto, Telluride, and New York, and some are already generating Oscar buzz. Room is the story of a mother and her young son held captive in a single room. That's us. It won the top prize at the Toronto Film Festival. You're gonna love it. What? The world. In Carol, 
Kate Blanchett plays the older woman. I like that. Rooney Mara, the younger one. And it's just a beautifully shot, beautifully acted film. It's a love story between two women set in the 1950s at a time when love between two women was frowned upon by society. I believe that I'm a woman. And I believe it too. Eddie Redmayne is a man transitioning to a woman in the 1920s in The Danish Girl. Would you dance for me? And Brooklyn brings us an Irish immigrant torn between her new life in America and her family back home. It's complicated, it's delicate, it doesn't overplay its hand, which is so rare with stories like this. This was for Dylan and Megan. And of Sarah course there will be plenty of laughs this fall. Will Ferrell is a stepdad in Daddy's Home. Diane Keaton and John Goodman are the grandparents in the CBS film Love the Coopers. Hi, Madison. You are such a jerk. <laughs> and Bill Murray is Bill Murray in Rock the Casbah. Broken water, fire in the night. Thank you. For animation fans, Pixar goes prehistoric with The Good Dinosaur. Good grief. And those familiar piano chords can mean only one thing, the Peanuts movie. My name's Joy, by the way. Jennifer Lawrence teams with director David O. Russell for the third time in Joy based on the woman who invented the miracle mop. We're gonna tell this story, we're gonna tell it right. Spotlight Everybody focuses on the Boston Globe reporters who uncovered the child sex abuse scandal inside the Catholic Church. In concussion, Will Smith is a doctor trying to tackle one of the NFL's biggest problems. They have to listen to us, this is bigger than they are. There are so many films to go see. I'm going to need to take several weeks off of work to see these movies. I know I'm exhausted just talking about them all, you know. But it's wonderful to have this kind of bounty of interesting films. So as you try to find the time to fit in so many first-rate flicks, may the force be with you. Chewy, we're home. And for author David Baldacci's picks for the best in fall reading, go to our website. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Millie Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder 
why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.